What up, what up, Meepsters? This is Ryan Rainbro, and if you're hearing this, that means you're about to listen to one of the 99 free episodes of the Meep Meep podcast available wherever you cast pods. But keep in mind that there are new and unreleased episodes of the show on patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. So you'll want to sign up there to hear future episodes and also other side projects like Choo Choo, the show about soundtracks and contribute suggestions for future episodes as well. Will I listen to your suggestion? <laughs> There's only one way to find out. Patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. Bye! Welcome to Meet Meet, the Roadrunner podcast, where we go through the albums of Roadrunner Records with the artists who made them and the musicians they influenced. Let's roll! What up, what up, Meepsters? My name is Ryan Rainbro, and today we are talking about the 1997 self-titled album by Karma to Burn from West Virginia, Wild and Wonderful. Karma to Burn are a unique entry into the Roadrunner catalog, which is pretty incredible. I mean, in 1997 alone, we have Rap Rock Pioneers, Shooty's Groove, Krishna Core King's Shelter, DJ Turned Band, Junkie XL, the power pop of Boy Wonder. So what could K2B have that makes them so special, right? How about an instrumental band? Not only that, but how about an instrumental band who releases a non-instrumental album on Roadrunner? Karma to Burn started and ended as all riffs and no vocals, but when Howie Abrams signed them to the label, the expectations were that they'd get a frontman to bring their message to the masses, and as you'll hear, that was easier said than done. Carmen de Burns' incredibly talented stalwart Mr. Will Meckham unfortunately and unnecessarily passed away in 2021. This album, however, lives on whether he likes it or not, and we have his partner in literal crime, Rich Mullins, to take us from the beginning to... well, you'll see where it goes. But first, we are joined once again by A&R legend Howie Abrams, who signed many of my favorites to the label, to tell us about one of his final projects for Roadrunner. Carmen Burns' 1997 self-titled album, how he helped them release the fully instrumental follow-up with his friend Peter Nussbaum, and how they were courted by a member of Metallica. Now, it's obvious that Rich and Howie have a great relationship and a deep admiration for each other, but one thing that stuck out to me that Rich told me about Howie when we were talking about this album was the day Howie Abrams went sober, the worst day of my life. That was the quote. So that was the first thing I had to ask Howie about, why he ruined Rich Mullen's life with his sobriety. Well, let's, yeah, let's start with that, right? Uh, Because, um, so first of all, I never went sober, right? (laughs) So I just wasn't them. I just couldn't do what they did. And, you know, there's there's a lyric on the Roadrunner album uh, about 4th of July, like at my house. And uh, and the lyric is tripping on the 4th of July. And so what's funny is I wasn't tripping with them. So I didn't try to keep up with those guys. You know, um, I wasn't straight edge by any means, but I just wasn't 
as intense as those guys. Those guys really like to be high. And so I just, after a while, um, I was a big weed smoker for years and years and years. And it was the kind of thing where it was like, you know, you're like convincing yourself it's a fucking lifestyle and all that shit, you know? And, and, and then one day it just turned on me. Like it, it, it became that thing that you hear about, you know, when you get all paranoid and like, it just, it's the exact opposite of what you want out of it. And I just quit. The only thing I quit was smoking weed, but I was never really a big drinker. I never really went sober, it's, but it's funny that Rich would look at it that way. Cause I think what he really means is he just stopped doing drugs with us. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, let's, uh, let's go back to the beginning now, or maybe this isn't the beginning, but I, or can you tell me what road trip records was? It seems like all these 10 inches came out on road trip. Yeah, there was like, at some point, Case decided that he wanted to start another imprint, um, which I thought he had gotten past, frankly. But he started another imprint because we hired an A&R guy named Jeff Packman. And Jeff, good guy. Um, but like Roadrunner didn't have the infrastructure to like deal with those types of groups like this Americana stuff. And like even even if, you know, the band made a really good record, I'm just not sure that we were equipped to do a good job, you know, for those bands. So when we, uh, when we first signed Karma to Burn, they weren't quite ready to, you know, record their album yet. They started, but we were like, let's appease them on this instrumental thing, you know? And like, so let's do a 10 inch, you know? And so we did a 10 inch and we just figured that it was so kind of left in general that, and everybody was still sort of battling with this idea of them being instrumental versus not. And so let's put this out on road trip. Like you're the first person to even remind me that there was a road trip, let alone that we put out the carbon to burn 10 inch on road trip. Um, but it was a, it was a really cool uh, little package and 10 inches were kind of a cool thing at the time. And I think we had, I think it was three instrumental songs that we put out on the 10 inch um, as like a, a little hype job, you know, leading into the album, which we knew was going to take a while because we were under the impression that there was going to be a singer at some point. And, you know, we thought that that was going to take some time. So to bridge the gap. And did you, uh, and when I say you, I mean, did Roadrunner introduce Steve Hagler to the band or was that somebody they sought out? Well, it was my idea initially. Um, but they were fans uh, of his as well. So when I first saw them, when we signed them, he was just somebody who I loved his work. And, you know, specifically at that time, it was the Quicksand Slip album that really, you know, was a big deal for me that that I was like, man, I kind of want this to go in that direction, you know, because it had that like heaviness but it didn't sound like a metal band you know um that you know bands like smashing pumpkins had also like where they were just super loud and noisy but you know then it had like all the pretty stuff too but it had these sort of monster guitar tones and and things like that so i thought steve was a really great idea and they were like if we can get him that would be great we we love his work he worked with the pixies and like you know all these different bands and so um i think Again, Quicksand Slip was kind of the, you know, the album that put everybody over the top, like that he was the choice. And so you mentioned that you guys kind of put out the 10 inch to appease them on the instrumental thing. So would you say that Roadrunner led them to believe that they would get to maintain their instrumental status or were you guys very? Uh... I'll tell you what, it's funny because I was the only 
like sort of non traditionalist in that bunch as far as the label crew goes like case and monty were both like they have to have a singer they have to have a singer and i'm sitting there questioning it a little bit you know i i was already on the singer train with them a little bit because they said that they would do that and they always teetered like there was always this yin and yang with those guys of like like uh we want to be a big band and we're right on the edge of fucking everything up you know, so that was kind of their their thing. So if they thought that the label wanted to hear that they're getting a singer, they told us that they were getting a singer. And so we were under the impression when we started the album with Steve Hagler that there was going to be a singer. Um, it was certainly understood that there would be some instrumentals on the album um, because that was part of what they do and, and what the only thing that they had done prior. Um, and then they brought up at some point the idea of a guest singer you know and that they were going to get the dude from Caius you know and so and then there were times when maybe he's going to be our singer and so everything that you've probably ever heard about like any nugget about them having a singer or anything there was some discussion as to whether or not they would be their singer forever um we're going to fly them down to North Carolina to Steve Hagler and they're going to just cut the album and and you know write lyrics and like all the shit and so there was so many stops and starts and i remember when we were recording the album you know we we did we planned with steve like let's we'll do everything instrumentally record it be done and then we'll take a break and we'll get the singer in place they'll write to the album and then we'll have them come down and, and do the vocals and so you know weeks would go by months would go by steve hagler where's the singer like are we finishing this album i've got other shit to do you know and it just wasn't happening because sort of unbeknownst to us they didn't want a singer you know they never wanted to have one so it just made things really difficult because i'm trying to champion them and they're just they weren't being completely forthcoming about what their plans were gotcha and do you think that maybe based on what you said, they weren't really sure what their plans were either? No, I think they knew exactly what their plans were. They didn't want a singer. And <laughs> so they uh, they basically were like, all right, well, let's start with, you know, the singer from Caius, and he wants to come and do a song. And then he wound up staying with them for a while, and then he's going to be the singer. And then, you know, and I like what he did with them. I was like, this is great. Like, it, you know, also he had a name. People liked his band, and they were – you know, sort of playing in a similar sandbox to, to Caius and it made sense. So, but then that all didn't happen, you know? So we did the one song and that was it. And then just things just sat around and then, you know, it became clear that Case and Monty and, and, and that, you know, sort of hierarchy at Roadrunner were like, they have to have a singer. Like that's how we're putting this album out. And so, you know, we came to a point where I kind of let them know, like, we got to do something, you know, because this is just sitting here and we're wasting time. Let's figure something out. So we sort of concluded we weren't going to do a start to finish album with vocals. And they wound up coming up with this guy, Jason. And so uh, I forgot how they knew him. You know, he just struck me as some like West Virginia guy, you know, that they knew who was sort of an artsy dude, but I don't even know if he was really a singer. 
you know, um, and they kind of got him to be the singer, you know, so I kept hearing about him and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then there was this one South by Southwest that they were invited to play and they were going to debut this guy. And so I went and there were a couple of other Roadrunner people there that just happened to be at South by Southwest. And we are like, just the anticipation was insane, you know, because we'd waited all this time and they're so high on the sky and we go and it was cool, but to see it live the fir- for the first time and hear him for the first time was weird. It's funny that they did a, you know, a joy division cover because it was very Ian Curtis. It was very like just sort of, linear it wasn't like a bunch of range um at times it almost felt like spoken word um you know and but he had this presence because he was very tall and you know it looked right on stage and they looked right as a four-piece which was interesting too so you know i came away from that like not thrilled but just sort of like this should work they took him in the studio with a, a producer named dan wise who was another just sort of like a guy I knew who I'd done some things with, who I liked very much, who just kind of, he had a very lefty old way of thinking and he was totally cool with the weirdness of the whole thing. And sort of, he got it, you know, and he's like, let's, you know, we'll make him sound really cool and we'll try to get some like, you know, some melodies out of this thing and, you know, and, and get his verses down and we will do it. And I thought it, it turned out quite well, you know, but it also became clear that this guy is probably not staying in the band as their singer, you know? So it was like a way to make the album, but there was really no future, you know, with him and with them as a band. We'll be back after a quick break. If you love good music and good podcasts, you'll love Roots Music Rambler. I'm Jason Falls. My co-host Francesca Folinazzo and I talk to the singers, songwriters, musicians, and more in Americana, alt-country, bluegrass, folk, blues, and beyond. We share our own takes on the latest news in the space and recommend new music for you to explore every episode. Come get to the roots of the music you love. Find us at RootsMusicRambler.com or go wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to Roots Music Rambler. Well, what was the label's impressions of the album when it was done? Were you guys stoked on it or you weren't happy with well, it? Well, I was happy with it because I think I was relieved, you know? That it got um, done? Yeah, that that there was there were decent vocals on it. Some were better than others, et cetera, et cetera. But I really liked a lot of the ideas because they were they were just unusual and he sounded good. I liked the sound of his voice. Um, I think Dan did some cool shit with him, you know, um, as far as getting performances out of him. And and they they came up with some like hooky kind of stuff that was just weird, you know, that I liked. But I think, you know, I, I think like, for instance, Monty, I think he wanted Chris Cornell. You know what I mean? I think he wanted like a Chris Cornell style singer like an Alice in Chains kind of thing. Like that's what I think other people wanted, you know, and that wasn't their vision, you know, it just wasn't what they wanted. And, you know, part of me wishes it is what they'd wanted, but it's not what they wanted. So you can't like, you know, you can't play in that area. It's not what they were going to do. There are times where it does sound very grungy to me. So I certainly see, that but a lot of the songs he almost sounds like he's going for like a white zombie kind of thing with his vocals 
Yeah, I'm not sure if that was intentional, but it had that sort of gruffness to it. You know, um, it had he was like a more gruff kind of Ian Curtis kind of guy, um, which is why he sounds absolutely perfect when they did 24 hours, because like close your eyes, except for the end and the heavy part. It sounds like Joy Division. It's such a straight cover. And then it turns into a very not straight cover. But um, but he was, again, linear is probably the best way to describe him. He was not uh, uh, full of range. Um, he wasn't going to be hitting high notes, that's for sure. It wasn't his style. Um, but he fit the band. It suited the band. And it suited that material. And so, but we. what's funny, you know, we never finished the album with Steve Hagler. Right. He bailed after he Jason. Yeah, he comes was in. like, I can't. Well, because every time, you know, there was because I, I had to stop with the false starts with him, um, you know, because it was sort of like we're starting to talk about scheduling and like we don't know what the fuck we're doing. We don't know when this guy's going to be ready or whatever. And Steve makes real money as a producer. And I, I, I couldn't fuck with him that way, you know. And what's crazy is his work with them is fucking great. Like what he did with them is exactly what we wanted. You know, it turned out, I mean, to a T, what we wanted from him, like why we hired him. He got that out of them, you know, and I think he just hated that he couldn't get it finished, like that they weren't prepared, you know, to to bring the vocalist in, whoever it was going to be, and just get in the studio with him and do it. Um, because I would have loved to have heard that album with him. Um but, you know, it turned out the way it turned out. I'm, I, listen, I probably like it now more than I did then. And I liked it then. Um, <laughs> but I like it more now because all the baggage is gone. You know, like all the like the, the agita of like making it with them is is gone. So I can just listen to it as like an artistic, you know, moment and go, fuck, they, they, this is really good, you know. And um and, you know, also hearing what they did afterward, obviously, you know, it gives you context and 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 they did a really good job with it. It just the way that it, it happened was unfortunate. Yeah, as a fan of the band, you know, I don't know when it comes out any of this background information about our drama. Yeah. So I just think it's sick. Yeah, they, 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 they never wanted a vocalist like they eventually would have come to doing something with vocals eventually just because from a creative place they probably would have gotten there like some opportunity would have come up you know where somebody wanted to do something with them um the whole fucking jason newstead they start to you know like gain some traction in europe and you know they're they're now the the, the sort of quote unquote stoner rock doom rock metal thing is is starting to be meaningful and and so they're a part of that you know and, and, you know, it, it is what it is. Like Roadrunner was not going to do another fucking album with them and that's it. And so I leave the company in 97, which is the year the album came out. It was almost a full year probably that I was, I was there, you know, since the album had come out, maybe less. So I go over to Zamba and, you know, I stay in touch with those guys and they know I'm a champion and, and, and I, I love them and, just want them to be a band, you know, and do whatever. So it's very clear. It's just going to be instrumental from now on. And so I, uh, I, I figure out what it's going to cost to make an album with them. And basically a, a friend of mine who was a huge fan, who was Roadrunners, like trademark and intellectual property attorney a guy named Peter Nussbaum. He was like my best friend from growing up. And so we're like, let's, let's be there their record company let's make their next record let's just pay for it 
And so we decided to do that. So we make Wild Wonderful Purgatory and basically put it out. I figured there's a few other like labels, both in Europe and America, that'll put these records out. Um, we'll be basically the production company. We'll pay for it, get the album made. We, I don't know if you've ever seen this thing. There was like this prison documentary on HBO where the guy's going on about having his ass eaten with jelly or syrup. So Peter, my friend Peter and I, we call ourselves Jelly Syrup Productions. Oh, wow. And so it, it, it's on the back of the albums. It's on, it's on the album. We're, we're the company now putting out Karma to Burn. It makes all the sense in the world. So, so we become Jelly Syrup Productions. We start putting out their instrumental stuff. So I'm assuming you've heard the story about them opening for Metallica. So we've now put out I think only the first instrumental album was out. I think only Wild Wonderful Purgatory was out. So Will is working at a bar in West Virginia, in Morgantown. And the phone rings and they have an agent. And the agent is calling him like, look, I just got a call from Metallica's people. They need you to open a couple of shows for them because COC, who's on the tour now, has to go home. And so, cause they had to go record, like they had a, a recording thing open up for them. Like the producer they wanted, whatever was available. And they're like, we got to like leave and go do this. So they asked COC who should take your place. And they said, there's this band karma to burn. They're only in West Virginia. Cause the shows were going to be in Kentucky at Rupp arena, two nights at Rupp arena. So Will thinks it's total bullshit. and hangs up on the agent. <laughs> so now the agent, is like calling back. They're not answering the phone. He, he, he like, will won't get back on the phone. And so one of the people that works at the bar is like, look, your agent is on the phone. He said, please tell will, this is not bullshit. Please get back on the phone. So he gets back on the phone and sure enough, they're being asked like two days from then, you know, or a day from them or two days from them to go to, you know, Kentucky and open, two shows for Metallica in an arena. And so now they're like, okay, we at least know this is real, right? So they they pack up the van and they drive to, I guess it was, it was in Lexington, Kentucky, and they're going to open up two shows for Metallica. And so apparently it was very funny because, you know, with the arena shows, you're not allowed to like lug your own gear and all that stuff. So they, they pull up in this piece of shit van you know with like completely beat up gear and like these loaders have to take their stuff out they're not allowed to touch it you know because it's like legal union shit you know so anyway peter and i together fly out because we're like we have to see this you know like we have to see karma to burn in arena period let alone with metallica so they do the shows and uh jason newstead is side stage watching them loving them both nights and we sort of noticed this and they said after the first night he talked to them a bit you know and, and was like tell me about you guys and like how do you know coc and all this shit so the second night happens and the next morning because we stayed over i go to the airport and there's jason so we're taking the same flight because we both have to change in detroit to go where we're going from Lexington. So I'm sitting next to Jason 
And Jason's like, I fucking love those guys. And he goes, I talked to them and I want to do an EP and bring in like four guest vocalists and have them write to their instrumentals. So he wanted to get like Pepper from COC and he was going to do one. And, uh, and Neil from clutch was going to do one. And there, you know, there's probably a fourth discussed or whatever. And he goes, I just love them. I I'm psyched to do this. Here's my number, you know? So like Jason gives me his number and we fly back together, you know? And so, but before we get on the plane, he goes, you know, just, just, um, you know, sort of stay tuned. Um, because you know, there's going to be some interesting news coming up soon. So just, you know, pay attention. We'll be in touch with him. Long story short, he was quitting the band. He was quitting Metallica. And one of the reasons he quit Metallica is because those guys weren't cool with him doing these projects. So they didn't want him doing Voivod. They didn't want him doing Echo Brain. They didn't want him doing any of it. And he's like, you know what? I, I'm a millionaire. I've been in this band for a long fucking time. Enough with the hazing. Don't you think it's cool if a guy from Metallica is working with these young bands and like, you know, part of this? They didn't want him doing it. And so the Karma to Burn EP was one of the things that put him over the top that made him quit. <laughs> so I'm like, Jesus Christ, like they ruined Metallica, you know? So, <laughs> but right, like at the moment, right. I'm like, what the fuck just happened? You know? But so he was giving me like the heads up that he was going to quit Metallica. And that one of the reasons was because of this, but then he got sort of so busy afterward because he did the echo brain thing where he really jumped into that and then he was like part-time member of Voivod and then he joined Voivod and then, you know, um, all that, that we just sort of never got it done before the band kind of broke up. And, you know, who knows even how far it would have gone had I not like spent like a, a couple of hours with Jason at the airport like that, you know, um, we were talking to each other on the plane, you know, you know, it was, it was just a really weird occurrence. Well, you, you brought up a good point that, you know, uh, you leave Roadrunners not long after Karma to Burn comes out. Dan Wise, who ends up yeah. producing the album, he produced Shooty's Groove, which was also yeah. a band that you were already gone for by the time they come out. So uh, I would ask you, first of all, do you think that the fact that Roadrunner didn't see the vocalist being a long term thing kind of halted any sort of promotion of that album? They Were they not really going? Oh, yeah, on? yeah. They just, yeah, they, they. The thing is, we we certainly overspent making the album, so that didn't help. But yeah, I, it, it wasn't what they wanted. They didn't believe in it. And again, I think they were hoping that we would have found like that next Chris Cornell, like young kid, you know, who could belt and sort of put them into that like alternative metal category that was happening at the time. And they just, they didn't believe. And we also, listen, those guys were so fucking volatile. And so you, they were too unpredictable. Like you never knew if a tour was going to happen or not happen. And if they were going to get on the plane and, you know, it's just, that's the downside of art, you know, sometimes is that like, you know, you got to give people the room to be who they are. But at the same time, there's a volatility there that if you're the guy spending money, you know, it's going to make you kind of uncomfortable. Um, and I think that that was a big part of it, too. You think there were any parallels with working to Buzz Oven as working to Karma to Burn as far as their? I don't think they I don't think they looked at it as drastically as Buzz Oven, because I think they I don't know if they what they expected commercially out of Buzz Oven. I think when we first saw Karma to Burn, you know, Monty was with me that first time we saw them, you know, and we were like, 
what we said was if they get a vocalist, they're going to be fucking huge. Like we thought they were going to be huge. Um, but we both said if they get a vocalist, you know, now I had spent time with them, talking to them and, and hanging out. And like, it became apparent, like they really didn't want that. They were sort of appeasing everybody by doing it. So, but you know, you didn't know how that was going to go. Maybe it was going to go well, maybe they were going to like it, but it, it ultimately had to be their choice, you know, and Roadrunner was certainly not a label in any position to be forcing their, forcing their will on a band. Like at that stage, there was no Slipknot, no Nickelback yet. Like none of that shit was happening. So, you know, for Roadrunner to be doing like a, we know best, you know, with these, you know, these guys, uh, wasn't very credible, you know? So it's not like there were, there was a line of hits in the Roadrunner, you know, sort of, uh, in the Roadrunner arsenal to go look what we've did. And we made these really good decisions and, and, and we feel strongly that this is going to work great and we'll get you on the radio. It's like, they, they couldn't say that. You think it was just a hunger for a hit that they were like, Oh, we know what to do to oh, try to get that was one? Definitely, definitely part of it, you know? And we, we didn't sign karma to burn to like a particularly cheap deal. It wasn't an expensive deal, but it, it wasn't like a, a cheapo, let's see what happens kind of deal. There was definitely some bending in terms of the, like the traditional roadrunner 360 thing, you know? Uh, but it was, it was that time, you know, like, if you wanted to be competitive for bands, you had a bend, you know, there were other labels onto the shit that, that we were onto now. It wasn't a few years prior where we'd be the only game in town for some of these bands, you know, like if you gave karma to burn, even instrumentally, you know, 15 more minutes out there on the market, somebody was going to snatch them up and it, we wanted it to be us. So we did, what we had to do to get them. And I loved them regardless um, but I was really rolling with what they were telling me and, you know, they, uh, they fibbed a little, <laughs> you know, and when you listen to them, there's this thing about them because it's got hooks in the music and it really is, it's not super traditionally structured and arranged, but it, more so than not, you know, it's not, it's not sleep with, you know, half hour songs. It's not, you know what I mean? It's not. That's not what they were doing. And so there was something about their instrumental stuff that kind of begged for vocals in a lot of cases. You know, not everything, but there was melody to the, the instrumentals. And you wanted to hear vocals on it. I wanted to hear vocals on it. And listen, would I have been happy with, you know, like a Chris Cornell type singer? Sure. You know, if that's what they brought in and that's what they wanted, I would have been like, fuck Yes. But, you know, it wasn't what they wanted. Um, and I did like what they did with Jason, but it, it, it limited them. You know, um, it kept it uh, not so much underground, but it definitely had uh, a ceiling to it that, you know, maybe with a different singer, they may not have had. We'll be back after a quick break. You still loading them and heating them up with all your single shit you've been dropping. You feel me? Loading them up on it. It only takes structure. And, and you know, just paying attention to the climate of the game. Yeah, know what I mean. So, do do your homies uh got a role in your in your little? You mean? Yeah, yeah. We all we all artists over here, man. I'm trying. Oh, yeah, I'm trying. Yeah. I'm trying. Oh, yeah. I'm trying to try, try get them on there. Yeah, yeah. Hey, me, me, just, me, yo, look, 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 
we all artists, man. We go, you feel me? We gonna have this like. Bro, me and my man, like me and my man Kyle, we be like, I don't know, we play, we play with this <laughs> shit. Right now. This I gotta lie, we play with this shit right now for for. Oh, I gotta lie, don't play with it. Don't play with it. No. Take that shit. Sir. Was Karma to burn the last band that you signed when you were with Roadrunner? I think Shooties was. I think Shooties was the last one, because um, Karma to Burn we probably signed in '96, okay, and it came out in '97, and then. I signed Shooty's Groove and like, you know, I wasn't even there for, you know, the release of the album. The Red Sea Pedestrian is what yeah. you are. <laughs> On the Roadrunner album, I think that's that was my name. <laughs> yes, it says Howie the Red Sea Pedestrian Abrams. So yes, it's definitely you specifically. Yes, I parted the Red Sea for them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> was that something they called you to your face? Like you No, I didn't I didn't I don't think I saw that until I saw the credits. Um, which I thought was hysterical. Yeah, very funny due to your your lineage to uh, to Moses. Um, yes, that's right. I know there's things that you guys wish uh, would have happened differently with the album. Whether they wish it would have just come out instrumentally, you wish it would have come out with different vocals. But you know, you spent a lot of time with the band both before and after their record. So, what's a, a really fond memory you have with those guys? They were just easy to root for. You know what I mean? Like, like. I Nathan, I got to knew, know a bit, you know, when he when he was in the band initially, because when I first met them, he was the drummer. But to me, that that the, the soul of that band was Will and Rich, like they were the guys, and they were the uh, you know the, the 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 Mick and and Keith, you know, so to speak. And I just loved what they wanted to do. I loved their band. I loved them making music together. And so we spent a lot of time together. And as people, when we got to just hang out as people, so much fun. And making their album was stressful. It really was. But the beauty of it was when we were free of all that stuff, like after the Roadrunner experience, it got fun again. When we just got to like make the albums that they wanted to make and they were inexpensive. It didn't matter. They put the artwork on it that they wanted. Um, you know, we got what they wanted done and just let them be. That was, that was awesome, you know, and that they got to continue on being a band and, and got more popular. They actually, you know, they, they, they became a bigger band um, as an instrumental band because, you know, we were able to just work with what they were. You know, instead of trying to like figure out all the time, like, what are they going to do? You know, and it it was it was really great to like see them continue on and to be able to help them do that. That was amazing. And 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 doing it with like my childhood best friend, you know, who was also just like, you know, uh, like a huge fan. You know, he was like the guy who I went to every show with when I was younger, hardcore shows, all that stuff. Um, and he was just a fan. And we were like, let's fucking just pay for their albums. Like, you know, like we won't make money, but we'll like we'll make our money back. And, uh, you know, they wound up on all these compilations. Uh, they played it. If it was not the very first, it was certainly one of the first X Games um, in Rhode Island. You know, so like we were just things were just happening. and. Unfortunately, I feel like Roadrunner, people didn't make any effort. And so once they were out there doing what they wanted to do, uh, as corny as this is going to sound, the karma was better 
things would come to them because people would just get to see them for what they are, love them because they're great and opportunities would happen. And they were always pioneers. So it's, it makes sense that they would play the first X games, you know, rest in peace to Will. You know what I mean? It's like, just very sad. And, you know, it's like, it's one of those people where Rich was the same and I'm thank God Rich is still walking the earth, you know, but like, you know, there were, there's a time there where like, ah, you know, these guys, like they do a lot of shit, you know? And, and like, I hope, I hope it doesn't come back to bite him. It was largely self-inflicted, you know, like he wasn't sick. He was sick in a different way. He had an addiction, you know? And, you know, so I always worried. I, I was always worried about Rich and Will. When you hear about Will passing away, you're like, fuck, but it's not super shocking. And so, you know, I don't know if that makes it better or worse, but it still sucks that he's gone. And he was an incredible talent and a super nice guy. And I got along with him great. And I was, I was really sad when I heard about it. Thanks so much to Howie always for his stories, wisdom, and insight. He has many books published about legends of hardcore like Sick of It All and HR of Bad Brains. Plus, coming soon, Vinny Stigma, a former meepster himself with Mad Balls, so be on the lookout for that. But now we kind of have an idea of what we, Roadrunner and K2B, were getting into. Bassist and founding member Rich Mullins is going to fill in those gaps, connect those dots. There's a dot with why John Garcia of Caius fame didn't become their vocalist, which also has a dot involving Nick Oliveri of Queens of the Stone Age fame becoming his nemesis. Then we'll dot 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 it over to working with producer Steve Hagler. And finally, a new Karma to Burn album in the works. It's a ride. Let's go to Dickie for more. Like, like busy beavers every day. All right, man, who do you got today? You know, this is when we first started to me. And uh, Will's like, hey, man, the Nye Bingy said they'll give us an opening slot on April something, like 14th or something, something like that, um, for this band from Baltimore that drew like crazy. The Almighty Senators. Landis was the name of their lead singer. I can tell you that. He was a large black man who could really sing great and was really freaky on stage. <sighs> anyway, um, this would be a huge show for us, right? So we take it, and um, right around March, like a month beforehand, we, we had a singer that we felt good about, he went down to South America and was killed in a car wreck. And it was kind of devastating because he was, he was like a legend in, in the town we were in. His name was Mark Fisher. He's just a wonderful, wonderful human being. And he no doubt would have made us huge, <laughs> but um, it never happened. It's, this is like a recurring story about, <laughs> about like what's to occur. So I'm like, all right, you know what? Let's just, I looked at Will and I was like, well, because uh, the first time I saw Will, he told a ghost story because it was Halloween and we were playing together. 
And now this is like the following April. And I was like, you remember like that ghost story you told me? He's like, oh yeah, that's a true story. Like he, he would tell this story where he um, was getting up for, he, he had quit school. So like he has, he was a dropout in like 10th grade and he works at an ice cream shop. And so like everybody else had gone to school for the day and he was waking up like around nine or 10. And the next door neighbors were, were these little kids. And normally they were babysat and totally in control. But this morning they were screaming bloody murder. Guys, where's your babysitter? And they're like, back in. And they're little kids. They're like four and six. And he walks back with them and there's their babysitter. And she is dead. She had a brain aneurysm and it killed her. So she just like dropped on the spot. So she's like a 55, year, 55 60 year old woman. And they had thrown water on her to try to revive her. Like these little kids, they didn't know what to do, you know? So she was soaked with water when he first saw her and dead and blue, you know? So it was a frightening thing to just see. Um, so he ran back to his house, calls 911. And um, that's how he would tell the story. And, and like he would tell the story about seeing her, how frightening it was. He would describe it really gorely. And then he would go like, and then you know what I did for the rest of my day? And people would go like, what? And he'd go like, I scooped ice cream because that was my job. <laughs> and then he would start a song. <laughs> so like he would do that story before it was like a story would get shorter and shorter, but it would just end up being like, I scooped ice cream and that was my job. And so we're like, dude, let's do that and play the songs. And so there were um, 60 some people when we played that night and we did that like we'll told that story and told a couple other you know ghostly things that meant the same thing and they all ended but i scooped ice cream that's my job catchphrase <laughs> <laughs> we couldn't have been more wrong um and then we got another show and so they're like in two weeks this like even bigger band uh royal crescent mob at the time this band at that time they were like a chili peppers band and they were like the same size as the Chili Peppers had been, like when the Chili Peppers released, like, you know, Fight Like a Brave and all that stuff, like the cool shit that they did. And I don't think the Chili Peppers really liked them. And actually the bass player, who was the main part of the sound, who sounded like Flea, bailed, stopped. He didn't want to be like, plink, dink, 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 dink. He didn't want to play bass like that anymore. And he left and joined the band called the Afghan Wigs. And so what ended up happening was that band was supposed to come in and Royal Crescent Mob. So we're like, wow, this is going to be a huge show. Can we get on this gig? Yes, yes, of course. It's in two weeks. So two weeks, we don't have time to find another singer. So we started to do the same thing. And so I saw one dude in the crowd like, shut up and fucking play. (laughs) (laughs) And we were like, I just looked at Will and we're like, oh, fuck it. And we played the whole show straight through without talking. And then we're like, wait a second, that was cool. And like everybody went, people went nuts. So then our third show was just us headlining. And we sold 740 tickets in this little place. You know, it only really held 400 people. And the guys that owned it are like, dude, you guys have a band. You need to go play in Huntington, West Virginia. And now we're like, okay. 
So we go down to Huntington, West Virginia, where, unbeknownst to us, we were, like, scared because, hey, we didn't have a singer. We thought they'd be like, you guys aren't ready to play, you know, when we got down there. And the owner of the club was this guy named Kerwood, and literally, like, Monster Magnet had just played there the week before. He ran down to us, and he goes, take a bite. And we took a giant bite. And then our drummer took a giant bite, Nathan. And we were just tripping our fucking faces off when we had to go on and we had no idea what to expect and it was like a three level place and it was sold out and there were 1400 people there and we destroyed it three encore songs later uh, i knew finally the other band got so pissed off they're like dude we still have to go on and we're like i'm so sorry you know like and they were called groovezilla i remember that at the time and um they left and the next show we played was new year's eve in West Virginia, same club. That club was run by a guy named Brian Barlow, who was the greatest liar you've ever met. Like he was just so good at lying. Like he literally could go like flatter theory. Here's what is right about it. <laughs> You'd be like, you know, he just had that inflection, the way you know, the way he lied. And um, he came up with this ingenious idea. He's like, let me book you guys a show in New York City. And I'm going to call record labels and pretend to be members of the bands that I know do not talk to clubs because I book these bands at our club. So I know who talks to to their agent and who doesn't. There's all he goes in every band there's one dude who talks to the agent. And he goes like your band, Rich, I know you're that guy. <laughs> he goes so I was going to do it to you guys. I'd be either Will or Nathan. <laughs> and he started telling us the bands he was going to imitate and they were all roadrunner bands mostly you know so he literally called roadrunner like six different times pretending to be dudes from buzz oven type of negative he pretended to be the dudes in those bands that they never ever talked to and he told them to say the same thing He's like guys we just played with this band they're called karma to burn and they crushed us <laughs> and like some, he would he had their schedule right there, so he would save the city. And the dudes would be like, "Oh shit, there's some local band." He goes, and that, and I just found out they're playing brownies up here. So like, we show up for our first ever really out of town, out of state gig. You know, from West Virginia, we go to New York. We show up to play this place, brownies. It holds like maybe a hundred people. Have ever been in there? We walk in, it's completely sold out. We're like, "Who the fuck is playing it? Sold out." And the owner goes, you. <laughs> I was like, what? And he goes, he goes, they're all record. He goes, don't get nervous, but they're all record labels. It was unbelievable. Like every table was like seven people and it was completely sold out. And then I recognized this one dude that was on like every Rolling Stone um, documentary I've ever seen, you know, up to that point. Yeah, yeah. You're talking about Kurt Loder. Famous dude with weird glasses, real tall and lanky. I, I can't remember his name. He like pretended to be an expert in Kurt Cobain these days. Um, but anyway, we play and the place doesn't like, they're record people. So it's not like a show show. So there's like no feedback, you know, from the, like we would get done and they would be like, whoa, that's it. <laughs> and being like, yeah, and, like, nobody came up front. Nobody went nuts. We're like, oh God, we're bombing, you know? 
So we were like, let's just run the last seven songs straight together. And that's what we did. We just went like through the songs without stopping. We get done. Everybody stands up, does like a standing ovation thing. And then every single table picks, like each table picks one of us. <laughs> so like Roberto picked me and they like, they all came, like Monty Connor and Howie came over and they're like, we want to have dinner. We would love to have lunch with you guys tomorrow. And I knew Will only wanted to be on Roadrunner at that time in his life. He was the only label he wanted to talk about. He only, he just, he loved them. He loved all their bands. He had just bought the new typo. You know, we had, we were listening to it in the thing. Whereas I wanted to be on East West because I knew Clutch was on there. And I was like, you know, but East West went and talked to our drummer, Nathan. So like, at the talk, it was this girl named Wendy Berry, I think was her name. But, um, all of us ended up with three cards from three different labels and three different meetings. And Barlow's there and he's like, I told you guys, now let me organize this. And so he put them all together and got us, um, they, uh, Roadrunner bought, ended up buying us a, a suite at the off Soho suite for the next three days. Cause he told him we couldn't meet with him for three days. And so for the two days in between, we met with every other label. <laughs> but by the time we had met with all those other labels, Will's idea wasn't so bad because we went and watched um, MTV. And at that time they had Headbangers Ball and we looked at it. And Roadrunner had nine bands on it that <laughs> night. Like, we were like, Jesus Christ. And so we went there. They had the dude from Headbangers Ball, like Ricky Rackman and his associate, were waiting for us. When we got there, they're like, these are our guys. We promise you, these guys will put you on Headbangers Ball. And we're like, yes. And, and we're like, what about the singer? And they're like, don't fucking worry about it. And we're like, awesome. Because everybody else is like, you guys need a singer like Tool. You need a singer like Quicksand. You need a singer like Afghan Wicks. Like, those were the, like, everybody would have that idea. And we're like, yes, we're going to be in Sprendle and on Roadrunner. We fucking roll. And so we go back home and we're all super excited. They send us the contract. We like, blah, blah, blah. They end up giving us like, a shit ton of money. I think at that time for us, it was $6,666 <laughs> each. And then we each got a check for $3,000 every month for the next year to get ready to be, get our shit together. And then they, and then they just bought us a brand new fucking uh, Ford van that was just beautiful. So we have all this shit now and incredible toys and we're getting paychecks for more money. Like in West Virginia, my rent was $200 a month. So like, I was getting three thousand a month. <laughs> That's what came into play. <laughs> and three thousand dollars in the nineties too. So you're really like really balling. Three thousand in the nineties. So yeah, it was a lot of cocaine. So like a <laughs> lot. You know, like I would literally get an eight ball for one twenty. You know, or something like that. Now, or else I would go. I would go. I would fly to New York. And I had friends at high times. I had friends, you know, because as soon as I got these friends at any place, I would just latch on to them. I would go to see my friend at high times and he'd be like, what do you want to do tonight? I'd be like, can you call some of your model friends and get us some coke? And, and he was, no problem. <laughs> would be like, I got a whole year doing this, you know? And then halfway through that year, all of a sudden they're like, hey, we decided we want you guys to get a singer. And it just 
It just crushed us. John Garcia, is that before or after uh, the Roadrunner deal? This is uh, before they demanded, or after they demanded. The first person we went to was John. And we went out, you know, and visited with him and stayed with him. And it sounded so crazy good. We were like, yes, this is it. You know, like, fuck, we didn't know it was going to sound like we thought we sounded great without vocals, you know. But then John just came in on like two songs and both the songs were fucking ridiculously good. But unfortunately, only one of them exists recorded today. But um, we did do a couple shows that were taped. If you can find those tapes, he sings like nine songs with us. He comes to West Virginia and like first we go out there and live with him, which was insane. Like we had the craziest, like I had never heard of Nick Oliveri before. Oh, wow. You know, at that point in my life. And I, I never knew that I was going to get like a nemesis. But anyway, <laughs> I like his girlfriend at the time was this chick named Val, who, if you've ever seen the movie Another State of Mind, which was like a great fucking movie back then, you know, like back in those days. Because it was like the tour with um, Youth of Today and um, uh, Ness, Mike Ness, Mike Ness's band. And uh, Mike Ness is putting on eyeliner the whole time in that movie. Anyway, um, that movie is crazy. And they go to Baltimore. When they go to Baltimore, there's this super hot woman at the show. And you're like, Jesus Christ, I would go to all these cities and play shitty shows like that just to get to her at this show. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that was Valerie. And she was, at that time, Nick's girlfriend. And Valerie and Nick lived in the basement of this house in Oakland. And so me, Will, and Nathan pulled up. We were there because the garage, the back garage of this building was going to allow us to practice with John. So like we could jam out there with John and everything was cool. And it was Oakland though. So like I didn't know much about Oakland. And this is where the greatest thing in the world happens. It's the, it's the worst of times and the best of times. But we, you know, everything's working out great with John. But now John's like, let's go out tonight. It is Nick Oliveri's birthday. And we're like, woohoo, this is going to be a blast. This, they know everybody. I can't wait to go. And he goes, he goes I'm going to take you straight to a bar. We're going to meet Kat, Catherine Enny. And she's the manager of Fu Manchu and Caius. And I'm going to tell her that I'm Queen Caius and joining Carmen DeBurn. And we're all like, woohoo, yeah, let's go do this. This is going to be great. Anyway, we get there, and um, oh, wait, before we go there, Valerie, the good-looking chick from the movie, comes out, and she and her daughter, Zanna, who is 10 at the time, and, and just as beautiful as Valerie, but she's a, ten, a beautiful 10-year-old, you know, and they walk out holding each other's hands, and they walk up to Nick, and they're like, Nick, you go out, and you have fun on your birthday, but you do not go to the bar where your ex-girlfriend works. And he goes, no fucking way am I going there. All right. So we all pop in the car. And at the last second, this dude with bright green hair comes running out of the practice space we were just in. And they're like, oh, this is that dude. This dude lives in the practice space. 
we forgot to tell you guys about him. And he plays, sometimes he plays with the dwarves. We're like, oh, okay, cool. Nick was just in the dwarves at that time. That was his only band. And at that point, he sold us some drugs, <laughs> which I didn't know anything about at the time because I had never done crystal meth. And these guys were like, oh, my God, it's great. You can, oh, it just, it's the best. You're going to love it, Rich. And they're like, do you like cocaine? And I was like, sure. I didn't know if I liked cocaine yet. <laughs> do you like uh, acid mixed with heroin? And I was like, sure. Again, only know what acid was like at that time. <laughs> so anyway, I'm thinking like, woohoo, I'm going to get some new drug tonight. This is going to be awesome. Yada, yada, yada. We all get back in the car. The only thing is, they do all of it. Just <laughs> fucking John, do it all. At no point, you turn around and go like, well, you, you like some? <laughs> We're just like watching them do all these lines. And like after they did each one, they're both like, oh my God, my nose is on fire. Like they, look like they were dying, you know, like. He's like, oh, I think it just cut my nose. Like, it looked like they were snorting glass, and they sounded like they were snorting glass. And we're like, maybe it is best for the best that we don't have any of this. You know, me, Will, and Nathan took that and went to this bar. That was the bar that Nick Oliveri's ex-girlfriend ran, which was the one bar we were not allowed to be at. So anyway, we're all hanging out there. And the dude with the green hair who got into the car last, like, he, we couldn't really find him or see him. But uh, me and Will were talking to Catherine Ennie, and right in the middle of it, the dude with the green hair showed up. He goes, hey, Will, you want to go with me into the men's room? And Will goes, the men's room? Why would I go into the men's room with you? He's like, do you have dope? And he's like, no, man, the men's room. And me and like, Will looked at me like really confused. I'm like, what, what are you talking about? He goes, there's the men's room, and then there's the men's room. And I'm like... And, well, because is the men's room a place for sex for men? And the dude goes, yes. And he goes, get the fuck away from me. And he, like, pushes him. He gets all mad. So while Will's doing that, the dude with green hair skedaddles. Like, I wouldn't see him again. We None of us see him again. And we end up getting loaded. I end up making Catherine Annie hate Karma to Burn forever. I don't even know what I said. I must have. Who knows? Like, it must have just been something about Sam Manchu, I'm sure. And then, um. I guess the best way to put this is we all leave in the same car, which was a really tiny car that we came in. Only everybody's like, where's the green haired dude? And, and Garcia and Nick Oliver are like, fuck that dude. At that point in time, Nick goes like, yeah, screams and punches the windshield out of the car that he's driving that were with us in it. He hit the windshield so hard with one punch that it literally spidered, and the left half fell out. And I was like, oh, my God. And then John punches it right side so hard. The whole thing just flips up over us. And I'm like, that was the windshield of our car. <laughs> totally gone. It wasn't my car or our car. It was one of their cars. I'm still not sure. I think it was his girlfriend. It was Oliver's girlfriend's. Um, unbeknownst to us, while that's occurring, green hair, dude, had been hiding... He went into the men's room and he passed out and nobody else went into the men's room to look for him. So he wakes up in the middle of the night, right while we're driving across the Bay Bridge, to get back to Oakland and sets off every motion detector in this bar. And the cops immediately get there. They get there within like 30 seconds and they have him pinned up against the wall 
and they're like, what are you doing here? And he's like, I need to make a call. I got drunk and I passed out in the bathroom. And they're like, prove it, <laughs> you know? And he's like, let me call. So he calls Valerie to tell her to ask Nick to come back and save him, you know, from the cops. Which immediately lets Valerie know that Nick has gone to the one bar that he was prohibited from going on his birthday with his ex-girlfriend being the bartender. So Valerie at this point becomes extremely agitated and hangs up on the green haired dude. And nobody knows what happens to the green haired dude at this point. <laughs> he never makes it home and nobody sees him again in the story. But what does happen is Valerie goes and gets her 10 year old daughter, wakes her up, and wakes up the owner of the house that she lives in. And anyway, the house that they live in is, is interesting because it's owned by a guy who uh, became a paraplegic after his vehicle wrecked, driving home from a generator show of Caius. And with his insurance money, he bought this house. And he was letting the actual bass player of Caius from that time period live there for free with his girlfriend and their 10-year-old daughter. The only stipulation was they do not bother him, the paralyzed guy, and his best friend. And his best friend is a dog who he's had for like 10 years, who's like a helper dog. And the guy's, you know, he's a paraplegic. So it literally his left arm can just barely operate his fingers. And that's how he controls the dog. They, he is awake in his wheelchair and he has his dog, which is a giant like pit bull slash rottweiler looking thing. And Val and their daughter are all standing at the end of the driveway when we pull in. We have no idea that they all know that we went to the one bar that Nick was not allowed to go to. As soon as we pull in the driveway, at that point, I'm like, I see them all standing there. I'm like, we need to get out of here. So I like grab Will, me and Will, and Nathan. And we jump out, side doors. And at that point in time, they pull up forward to meet those people and all we can hear a giant argument and then Nick slap or it was a slap or a punch. I didn't see it. Either a slap or a punch to Valerie in front of her daughter, which immediately made the pit bull slash Rottweiler go insane and jump on his arm. So his arm was getting mauled by that dog and he's like spinning it in circles. And I don't know why or for whatever reason, the green-haired dude earlier had taken out a bunch of garbage, and in the garbage he had put a giant mirror. And fucking Nick spun that dog right into that mirror. So that by the time the cops get there, they have to put the dog down, which is the guy who owns the house, best friend. They arrest Nick, you know, for starting everything. And his arm is ruined by the dog, so he's being, like, wrapped up. But, I mean, obviously his, his arm got better. And that was our very first <laughs> indoctrination into what life with John Garcia might be like. <laughs> and so Will had a really bad reaction to it and didn't want to do it. Like, and that's what that's why we invited him down for one song. And then I wanted him to do the whole record. And I was like, he's not the guy responsible for what's going on and blah, 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 blah. But Will felt like, you know, it would be, no matter what we did, like, John would turn me into 
Nick. <laughs> in, in a couple of years of influence, you know. That was really the, the downfall of our last really good attempt at getting a singer that wasn't Jim Davidson, you know? When we were putting out our record, there was one day where they called Josh to New York and they called us to New York. And they gave us really slank rooms. And we had a really early meeting. And I went in. And it was Case Wessels. And he was like, we're not releasing your record instrumental. You've got to figure this out. Meanwhile, in the other meeting room, he like was taking time out to walk between me and Josh. And just to be clear, when you're talking about Josh, you're talking about Josh Homie from Queens of the Stone Age, who at the time were a Roadrunner band. And in Josh's room, he was like, you will never sing on this record for this band if we own you, you know? And Josh, at that point in time, God bless him. Got physical. <laughs> and took it to a new level. And it ended both of our meetings. So that we left without an answer, and he did too. But his, like I said, his lawyer was kick-ass, and ours was non-existent. So we ended up fucking making a record with one song that had vocals on it. And that song was 24 Hours. And the rest of the song was instrument. The rest of the songs were instrumental, and we thought they were awesome because we thought we had the best gimmick in the world. Because I mean, like dudes will go to crazy lengths to have gimmicks. They will paint their faces. They will wear masks. You know, they will shave their heads, put goat horns on, and you know what I mean. Like they, everybody does anything they can have for a gimmick. Jimi Hendrix would light his shit on fire. You know, we had a surefire gimmick. Songs that were riffs that were easy to remember with no vocals. <laughs> like, well, why not give it a run up the tree and put all of your money behind it because it's that good? I mean, can you imagine at that point in time that record having the full power of Roadrunner behind it? Because like, at that time we got pulled, it like we get the snow is like pouring, or like we were playing in Akron. Same time there's this Roadrunner tour going on in Cleveland, and we meet at the same uh, roadside stop because we're both going to the same place, basically the same place. These guys have three buses and a tractor trailer, and they're in this band called Coal Chamber. Who but originally was going to sing 24 Hours? Uh, Jim Davidson. Oh, okay. Who we always wanted to be our singer. He was in my, my old band. Oh, here, but I do actually. We are going to do a Corner to Burn record because me and Will have nine songs that we never released, and uh, I'm going to release them. Oh, wow. So there's going to be, I got Nathan from the original, from this exact album. So I have the best drummer we ever had. You know, we that was part of the problem is we had this incredible drummer, Nathan Limbaugh, and then we couldn't. You know, how do you find somebody that fucking good? <laughs> like, 
<laughs> you know, again, like you're, if you find it, like drummers are so hard, like, you know, look what happened. Like Nirvana switched overnight when they got girl. You know what I mean? Like when you find your pro drummer, your fortune switch overnight. Same way with us, you know, with Nathan, it's just, and I want to, I want Will to go out on the song, the last songs that me and him put together with Nathan. So there will be one more climber to burn record. Well, that's awesome. That's, that's big news. It's all instrumental and it's cool. There's some aspects to it where people are going to be like, wow, they should have done more of that before. And you know why? <laughs> because Will's not there to bug me about delays. <laughs> <laughs> it's too much delay, dude. I don't know. God, I would be like every. I could always guess. Like I would see him walking towards the room. And be like he's gonna. He, he's gonna tell you this is too much delay. You watch. Hey man, I think it's too much delay. Yep. <laughs> Got ya. <laughs> see ya. <laughs> so the yeah, original this, uh, this, this recording, the four song, yep. the four song self titled EP that comes out before the Steve Hagler. Steve Hagler, yeah, yeah. Almost all those yep, songs yep. end up on the full length, and uh, Steve Hagler starts mm-hmm. making the album with you so what uh what stops his yeah. involvement with the record what happened he got these headaches i swear to god to you and i have experienced them because when you talking to will is literally sometimes like putting on a football helmet backing up four yards and running yourself straight into a brick wall as hard as you can and that's what Steve Hagler was experiencing at, with the beginning of the first Climber to Burn record. And then at the same time, Will didn't want vocals on there. None of us wanted the vocals on there. We didn't have any vocals, so we would have to go upstairs at night and write vocals and come down. And our friend, who had never sang one in his entire life, would have to sing another song like every day. And Hagler's eyeballs started sticking out further and further from his head. He showed me, like, one day, he's like, Richard, he's like, look at this vein. And I was like, oh, my God. Steve, he's like, he's like man, I got to quit. Now. And at the same time, Will had taken down a copy of uh, the Melvin's um, Stoner Witch. Um, he had taken him Stoner Witch, and he was like, man, listen to this, Steve. This is what our drums need to sound like. And Steve was like, our drums do not need to sound like that. And he pulled out the pixies. And he's like, this is what our drums need to sound like. I was like, hey, man, if you can pull off either of those, <laughs> I'm uh, pleased as punch, dude. <laughs> no, Stu would argue a, a nonsensical argument. Like, I mean, like, the pixies sound live. The Melvin sound like they're in a room with reverb on, <laughs> which is great. But I mean, it's a different drummer than our drummer. So like, you know, I, I think Steve was right. But at the same time, when you give power to, you know, three assholes that don't know what they're doing, you know, and one of them tries to flex and be alpha, you end up with something like Steve Hagler's vein shooting out of his eyeball and his eyeball shooting out of his forehead. And so he left us up in Connecticut. And I was like, please, dear God, let us get out of Connecticut. Connecticut is the worst place. It's like this place where the Pixies built, did a record. And like, I would literally go for a walk around the neighborhood. And it's called the Carriage House Studio. I'd go down the end of the driveway, turn right, 
And back in them days, we had things called Walkmans <laughs> or Discmans. I had a Discman on, which I would put a disc in and be listening to my disc. And fucking a cop car would pull up and they're like, get in the back. And I was like, what? And they're like, get in the back. And then they like made me, they drove me all the way back. And I really was, I needed to get to the store. <laughs> so they drove me all the way back to the place. So then they went up to like the actual house where it was working at. And at that point in time, they decided that I was allowed to be in their corner of the woods. And they're like, you know who lives next door to here? And I was like, I have no idea. And they're like, Mariah Carey. <laughs> it's like, wow, really? <laughs> I was like, how do I get in? <laughs> like, what do I, does she have parties? Like, what do you know? I mean, like, what do I do? Anyway, they were amused. Stamford, Connecticut. It just sucks. Uh, the, the World Wrestling Federation is like all is from there. Yeah. You know? The headquarters is there. You know, at this point, it really becomes a, uh, a bizarre thing. Because, like, two guys kind of take over. Gary Reinfuss. And then the dude whose name is on it for actually uh, producing it. Daniel Wise? That's it, Daniel Wise. Um, who, he's a sweetheart. Like, he's just an absolute sweetheart. And he got us, you know, he gave us some ideas. And he was working with, it was just an impossible task. Like, if, if they really wanted vocals, okay, why not release the first thing we did that was already done, put it out, you know, as is instrumentally, and let us write a vocal record. Because to just take a record we did and add vocals to it doesn't work. Like, it just, you're adding vocals to songs that are written instrumentally. Like, that was the kind of shit that we were up under. And I didn't realize it a lot of it when I was younger, because... At the end of the day, I needed that record to come out so that I could make a living, you know, playing music. And Will was just, I think it broke Will's heart so much that at that point in time, he decided to start drinking and committed the slowest suicide I've ever seen in my life. You know, I really do. I really think at that moment, his heart was broken that he did not get his instrumental record. I think we also fucked up on some levels because we made a video for eight and we used the one when we made it for like the EP, you know, and it's the version of eight from the EP and it's brutal and great and beautiful. But at the same time, the video is just, awful it looks like some dude has like a gopro on his head and is in a pit you know <laughs> that's, it. that's the whole video i mean it was before there were gopros so yeah we really had to tape the thing to the guy's head <laughs> but like we literally spent all the money on drugs in order to make sure that there were a lot of girls there <laughs> like we blew it all on dope and yeah, i mean cocaine and that's a true story. We <laughs> had like an incredible party upstairs. Like everybody you see in that pit during that eight thing, they were all upstairs dancing and having a blast with us. Like the whole night. And that was really fun. And it was like our party with, you know, West Virginia. But it was no video to, to turn into Roadrunner who had just had like typo negative hand in the thing with the 16 year old chick where. 
it got him in Playgirl with the boners, and then, uh, you know, and then he slept with her, and then her parents sued, so there was all kinds of attention, and he was in the New York Post every other day, and Playgirl with boners, and, you know, like... <laughs> So, how does uh, Jason become involved as the vocalist actually on the record? Okay, Jason and I went to high school, and he became an incredible artist. And not only that, he was so fucking hot, like for ch- like chicks. Okay, I knew we and Will knew that he was the dude when like we brought him up to New York one time, and Roadrunner always put us up at the Gramercy Hotel. So Jason sits down at a table with us. I'm sitting there. Will's sitting there. And like every time that we've met any chicks in there, it, we usually, we had a plan. We would wait till like right around one in the morning. <laughs> and we'd walk over and be like, what's up? Because they would be all loaded, you know? And um, we're leaving dinner. And a girl, like probably the hottest girl I've ever seen, walked over to our table. And she just looks at Jason right in the eye. She goes, in a it's super huge Italian accent, like, um, whoever you are, you're, co- you're causing quite a disturbance over at our table. You come over and talk to us. And I was like, yes. And she goes, not you. <laughs> like, no problem. <laughs> and I just like sat back down. And, you know, he was like 6'4". He, oh, like, in high school, he, I would, I, you know, he was like the guy you would bring him with you. If you're going to the mall, even if you didn't want them there, because girls would just come over, you know, like, it was really weird. And um, it, it was amazing. So we were like, yeah, if we're going to, if a dude's going to do a song in our record, this is the perfect qualification. Because like, when we were out with Garcia, like he would literally yell across the street at chicks and be like, hey, baby. And we would watch them speed up and run <laughs> to get away. <laughs> I'm like, I don't think this is the lead singer we need at this point. Jason, being an artist, like you mentioned, he actually does a lot of the illustrations for the the album artwork, right? That whole record, like any of the art, like anything that's art art, all the pictures are by me and Michael Wilson putting it together. And I had like this girlfriend at the time who really was great. Um, her name was Maria Armada. And she and I... Um, just like I would have ideas and I would say them to her and she would turn them into good ideas. <laughs> like, like we came up with the idea of making a stained glass, uh, girl sitting on the state of West Virginia. Like basically the cover to the first EP I wanted to redo. Cause that's just me with a comb, some glitter and, um, a, a tag off of a dress that she had. I like, just cut the girl off of and plopped her on. Fortunately, did not get sued because I don't think, you know, it's hard to get sued when you need to sell 40000 or something. <laughs> Unless you're in a band called REO Speed Dealer, and it's very easy to get sued. But anyway, <laughs> but uh, we, you know, like, I really wanted to take photos of some things that we had by Michael Wilson because he was such a great photographer. You know, he had done every, he's done every single Lau Lovett cover. And some of those are so great, you know. You know, that was probably the best person that Roadrunner hooked us up with. He took all the pictures 
of the things, the little ideas that I had, you know, like of taking a glass brick and putting a bar inside of it, you know, and then putting the, and then at the same time, he really, we were all super nervous to do a photo shoot. So my idea was like, let's all get a different color of Mad Dog 2020 because they look so cool. Like when you hold those different bright colors of that <laughs> horseshit wine. And so we each drank one of those. Well, we had, each had two. And we each got through the first ones, and it, our pictures exploded after that. Like, we did, we don't, I don't remember half of it, but we would do anything he would say. He'd be like, you know, put your face in that tree stump. No problem. I mean, go in that crib. No problem. I mean, you know, <laughs> anything. And uh, it just made it so much easier to take photos. But the actual bottles themselves were super pretty. So we did a whole, you know, like you can see the bottles. That we did, we drank each one of those bottles right then and there during <laughs> during the photo shoot. There was only three of us, but there was uh, there was four of us, but there was literally twelve bottles. And the rest of it was just pictures of my room because I, I I had the coolest room at that point in time because Roadrunner was just giving me so much money. I would just go buy the coolest stuff, and we would go to flea markets and. At the flea markets in West Virginia, there's always a Ku Klux Klan booth, and they always have the weirdest shit. Like you'd be like, "Whoa!" Like they would have like a machete from 1850, and they would claim that it, that was the machete that once his face from South Carolina held the general, you know, and different weird guns that were taken apart from the, you know, the old days. But they would sell you the gun and tell you how to put it together <laughs> so it would work when you <laughs> and. I, you could just buy really great, crazy shit. And one of the things that booth sold was that girl on the motorcycle. <laughs> That's on the cover. It was just a marble statue, I guess. I don't know exactly what the person did or what it had to do with their, you know, they never said it had anything to do with them. So I just, you know, bought it. I thought it was just like a cool antique item that they had at their booth, you know? And that's where I got, I found it. I, that's why nobody else found it. There was like three of them. And I wanted to do them all in a row as our albums. You know, we all agree like, oh, this would be a great idea. But then I got really drunk, really mad at that girlfriend. And I just smashed them against the wall, like after the first photo session. So then all I had was pieces of them did you and will write the <laughs> vocal melodies and the lyrics for the album or did jason write them himself um we all every single person wrote them and we all had a part in them mostly me and jason but will did some of them too you know and anytime you hear anything really high and it sounds like a girl singing it's me wow that's crazy because i was going to ask you that <laughs> <laughs> yeah those are me <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was definitely going to ask you about that song in particular because uh, on yeah, Patty Hearst, um, it sounds like yeah, a female song, vocal. We did it three times. Yeah, yeah, it's, it does. And I, that's you know, God bless me. You don't have to squeeze my testicle or anything. It just comes out like that. <laughs> <laughs> I just, well, it's equally I just do it. 
it's just as confusing because uh, you know there is a uh, a female vocal on the song beforehand, so I was like, oh, they got her on two songs. Sure, yeah, Octavia. She was in that. She was the. She was a. She's like a huge star, actually. Like she was in this thing called Rent at the time that wasn't that big, but it became huge, and all of them made millions, and she was one of them. And but before it became huge, she needed a couple bucks. <laughs> so she sang "Girl Bad, Animal Good." <laughs> But like we're mostly just thinking like all these vocals are going to come off, you know, like they're not going to take this seriously. And they did. (laughs) (laughs) He would literally take like Black Sabbath sounding melodies that he had in his head. And I would say that sounds exactly like Black Sabbath. Why don't you just cut it in half and spread it out over two things and it won't sound like Black Sabbath. And then it didn't. And it actually sounded cool. It sounded they want. They just not only did they want vocals, but they wanted them to be like the main part of the song. So they wouldn't even let us mix it down, so that the vocals were barely heard. You know what I mean? Like the way the Rolling Stones mix a record. Whereas the Beatles, the vocals are ten times as long as anything. I mean, ten times as loud as anything else. You know, and they wanted Beatles mix downs where we wanted Rolling Stones type mix downs. And so, like a year later, meanwhile. We're walking down the street. I was like, well, we are doomed because we put vocals on this fucking record. And he's like, no, we're not. We'll do the next one instrumental. And I was like, okay. Although the Roadrunner's not going to put it out. And he's like, we'll see. And sure enough, those fuckers bought it. <laughs> you know, like they released us. Let us go make it again. And then they had to pay us again. <laughs> like, they could have just held us and paid nothing. And they had, like, just paid for the record. And they would have had it. But you have to know that there's people that love this album with the vocals. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And you know what? I I really respect that because, like, honest to God, like, what we did come up with with the vocals, I thought was, like, really eclectic and, like, it really sounded like a 70s thing. Like, it sounded like, um, like, there's, there's two songs on it that I just absolutely love. And, like, I mean, there's three instrumentals. I love them. But I really fucking love um uh goddamn with six turned into and then uh appalachian woman i thought appalachian woman was totally fucking cool like if they would i was like can you make that the single like the way it came out i thought it came out incredible you know we've got timpanies in it and it's like it really to me even still to this day it doesn't i can't tell like what year that song was made in it sounds like Tom Waits to me, like if Tom Waits made rock songs. Like, that's, 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 Jason did all of that. He did all of that by himself. That's 100% just him. And I thought, like, God, if we weren't bugging, like, if we didn't have to do this every day and we just let Jason end up writing the songs, who knows how good it would have been. It sounds like there's an organ on Appalachian Woman. Is there, like, extra instruments added onto that? <laughs> that's my voice. That that's your voice doing the organ noise? That's me. That's me. Yeah, and I sang through a um, uh, what do you call that thing? You know, when you make a guitar talk, like yeah. on Peter Frampton, "Show Me the Way." Wow, 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 wow. That's me going through that, going through a chorus, going through a delay, <laughs> and I'm just going. Ah! <laughs> it just—I thought it came out cool, you know. Like it just—it didn't sound like a voice, which is what I—we didn't want it to be a voice, you know. Like we wanted it to be an organ. 
just none of us could, I couldn't find the notes on the organ when I tried to play it, <laughs> I couldn't, but I could sing it. And so he's like, just sing it. I'll make it sound like an organ. And I was like, woo. <laughs> that's super cool. Actually, that's unexpected. Yeah. And that's where, and then, the, and then we threw the timpanis underneath there. And that's why I like that song so much. You know, I was like, God damn it. This song stands up. Like that song stands up. So like I was really, but I was just really impressed with us that we did get like three, three or four songs right. You know, I felt like, and there's some people that really like that record that, you know, what I would, what I would say to them is like, dude, it's really close on some of those ideas to being great, you know? So fuck. I just, I've always wanted another you know, I've always wanted to grab Jim Davidson and go back in there and do it the way we really wanted to do it, you know? Well, how did you uh, part ways with Jason? You said that you already had kind of decided you're going to make the next record it was, instrumental. It was a snowstorm. We played two shows together. And, you know, what was crazy is I've talked to people recently. We picked the wrong city because like our biggest and best fan base was in Cleveland. And Cleveland is a no-bullshit town. You know what I mean? Like they are fucking no bullshit. And we showed up with a giant fucking busload of bullshit. <laughs> Everybody knew we were trying to put vocals on our record and they did not accept it. And our fans like turned our backs on us until we, you know, we asked Jason to just leave the stage. He left the stage and we played the rest of the gig. Like and we did four songs with him and then we, then we had to get through the rest of the set instrumental because everybody was so pissed. You know, and it, back in those days, when you're playing to 300 people, they're away straight up against you. Like if there's a six foot five dude who's really unhappy with you doing something like that, he's picking me up by my neck. Going like, get rid of your singer. <laughs> you're like, no problem, man. Can we get rid of our singer? <laughs> I know there's a lot of things that you would have done differently with the album. That's that's clear to me. But what is a really great memory you have? What's your favorite memory of making this album? Oh my God. When it was just instrumental, when we were first doing it and we were at Reflection Studio, I didn't realize what Reflection Studio was because we get down there and as soon as we arrived, Steve Hake was like, uh, REM's uh, got an extra day, so can you guys just go hang out? I was like, excuse me? It's <laughs> like my favorite fucking band in the entire existence. And I went in and there they were, man, just in there, you know, killing it. And I heard like there's a piano at Reflections that is the piano from Murmur and from South Central Rain and like every great REM song is that fucking out of tune piano <laughs> in the back. And they go like, and it's out of tune, but you can't, nobody can use it or play it except for REM because they had hit songs with it. So like you can't, there's nothing you can do with it. Otherwise people would be like, dude, that's REM. <laughs> My favorite, that was like absolutely, you know, for a 19-year-old walking in, that's just nuts. You know, it's just crazy. It, it just seemed crazy to me. I was like, oh, my God, and we have this much, like, we're getting paid to do this. Like, it's just, everything seemed crazy. Like, I just didn't understand, like, that I was actually a musician and could make choices. I just felt so... um inexperienced young and from West Virginia that I didn't stick up, you know, for what I was really worth or anything. I just thought, Oh my God, I'm so fucking lucky. Like, I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe it's happening. <laughs> this is so crazy. 
you know? Like if you're like a seventh round draft pick, you know, on a team and it looks like you're going to make like the Steelers, you know, how you're just grateful to be in the rooms for with the meetings is what I figure, you know, where I should have been like, no, fuck this. Like James Harrison, Hey, I'm the best player in my position. I deserve more, <laughs> you know? And I didn't, I just didn't know enough. I loved REM. I loved it. And because I loved REM, a friend of mine played me this record um, one night, and there, this band was called The Tragically Hip, and they were from Canada. Yeah, man, and Woodstock '99, baby. I remember watching them. They are the they were they. I it was back when they only had one record out, and I was just like, holy fucking shit, this is beautiful. This is like REM, but the words are actually, if I can even think this, they might be better, you know. And then they were playing Pittsburgh. And I was like, oh my God, I can drive. You know, it's only 85 miles and go see them. And I drove there. I was only 17 at the time. And I go backstage. And then the singer of the tragedy hip goes, hey man, you want to have a beer? <laughs> and I was like, I have a beer. So like, they gave me a beer and we're sitting there and we're talking. I know I, 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 it just, you know, the night ends, I go home and I was like, what a cool, like I told them all of my dreams that night and fucking we make our, we're making our first record, you know? And like I said, we're at the place where I was at and I saw they came in for a day and I was playing bass that day. So I, I couldn't talk to them. They were in the other studio and they were gone before I got done. I was like, fuck. Anyway, we fast forward. We have a show, one of the first shows we ever play for the, this record coming out in Rotterdam. And so we show up there. We're in our bus. We're acting all cool. You know, we got our bus walking down the steps. There you go. There's another band. You guys are opening. Okay, who are they? And I go, he goes, tragically it. And I'm like, oh my God. And I ran up to the dressing room right away. <laughs> they were all taking showers. You know how it is. When you're on a bus, the minute you pull up to a place, if they have nice showers, everybody's in them. <laughs> like, everybody's taking a shower. So, like, one of them comes walking out and goes, hey, what's up? And walks past me. And I'm just standing there, like, grinning. Wait, and Cordy comes walking out. He's just wearing a towel. And he stops. And he looks at me and goes, you're that little kid from Pittsburgh. <laughs> and I go, I am. <laughs> he goes, he goes, holy shit, are you are you the other band? And I was like, yeah. He's like, Palmer to Burn is you. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, holy shit. And it was like he remembered every moment. He recited to me things I didn't even remember that we talked about in that in that room. And then I told him that you know we saw each other when we were recording our first record, but I couldn't talk to him. And he's like, dude. I didn't know that was you. He's like, I sat there and listened to those bass lines for like five hours and they were beautiful. And I was just like, man, we need to get more stuff like this. And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah. Thanks so much to Rich Mullins for taking the time to talk about this album that's important to so many people, myself included. And huge news coming that a new Carmen to Burn album will still come out. 
and we can continue to celebrate the legacy of the band and of course Bill Meckham rest in peace and the Meep Meep legacy rolls on. Hey, you know what a great gift for Christmas or New Year's or Valentine's Day is? The official Meep Meep podcast shirt available at meepmeep.bigcartel.com. Free Christmas card with every purchase. Or hey, maybe you don't like material things. You're above that. You just want more great content. Well, guess what? There's bonus episodes, including my exclusive Trust Kill series, Living with a Pod Complex, available at patreon.com slash meetmeetpod, which also, also includes a free Christmas card with sign-up. It's me and Jimbo dressed up as King Diamond and whatever that reindeer's name is that's on the cover of the No Presents for Christmas picture disc from... I don't know, 85 or something. I got mine in 2016 when they re-released it for Record Store Day because in 85, I wasn't even born yet. I'm so young and handsome. But in the meantime and in between time, please leave the show a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Follow me on Instagram at Pod to keep up with all the latest and greatest. And I am Ryan Rainbow. This is Meet Meep. And yes, that's the best that I could come up with. Bye. <laughs> the other three bands on the gig, and the first opening band was Finn Lizzy. <laughs> Boys are back in town. <laughs> they were yes, but you know they're all dead. <laughs> like there was only like two original dudes, and um, they were first. But I walked back to the soundboard, and when I walked back to the soundboard, because they sounded good, you know, this is, they had a woman, a woman sound person. We started talking, and she was in Lizzie's original sound person. And everybody told me that. They're like, oh, she's been, she's been with the band since, you know, when So Annoyed was alive. And I was like, really? Me and her start talking and talking, and, and I told her that, like, at one point, I was bragging. You know, I'm just like, you know, I'm an adventurous type guy. That's why I do this, and I want to travel. And she's like... You said you were adventurous earlier. If you're so adventurous, come here with me tonight. I live right here. And I was like, well, my bus is going to leave at 4 a.m. She's like, don't worry about it. You can, I'll put you on the train and you'll be in your next little Holland gig in no time. And I was like, all right. So I'm like, this is my first Holland experience. I'm walking outside with her. And I'm like, where's your car? And she goes, car? she's like this is my bike (laughs) I was like a bike oh god I was like all wasted she's like sit up here on the handlebars (laughs) and I was like oh god my foot goes right into the front tire spokes and I had like these old beater boots on like military you know steel toes and (laughs) the whole front of the bike flipped over I went straight onto my face like I couldn't have any shape and um, so did she and there were all these people watching us and they were all laughing and she got super pissed off. We go straight to her place. She goes, this is the bathroom. You go in there and you take a shower because you stink. That's what she said to me. I was like, she has changed since the little white bathroom. Like she's not nearly as fun as she used to be. And so I'm in there and it's freezing cold. Like there's no heat. Like it's this bathroom. Like, and I got the hot water going, but it's only like a little trickle and wherever it's hitting me is going to spot on me. It's warm. <laughs> and she comes running in naked and she puts her hands like up on the wall 
And she goes, you said you were adventurous. Now fuck me in the ass. Meep, meep.